Hi there, I'm David Mack. I'm joined today by Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver, two of the stars of Netflix Unbelievable, who will be on the show today. We will see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford. She's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. I just want to give you a Tony Collette. Good yes, morning. I love that. The energy cool, in um, that collected. Eclipse. What we do? A peace rainbow. A little peace rainbow. Tony yeah. Collette, Welcome the goddess. The well, you will see her later today. She's a lovely person. Well, I love her show. The show's speaking, wonderful. Speaking of goddesses. Yes. We saw Hustlers last night, and just like just delightful. Loved bravo. it. Yeah. I literally, Alex and I sat next to each other, and J Lo, of course, does a dance in there, and I was like, <gasps> like everyone in the audience is just like dead. It's just the most incredible thing ever, and it was better than I expected. I had I. I tried to keep my expectations low. I, you know, uh, I, I tried to go in as a blank slate, mm-hmm. but like I knew I was at the very least going to have so much fun watching this movie. And without giving away any spoilers at all, I thought one of the most fun parts was getting to watch people like Cardi B and Lizzo mm-hmm. and J-Lo interact with each other, even though they were interacting as their characters. It was still something that was like just so fun about getting to see these yes. really mega, mega, mega famous mm-hmm. people um, just Hanging out. Uh, yeah, and hanging they literally out. are in like really tight scenes together. Like there's yeah. a lot of moments with them in the beginning that you're just, it's totally worth it. It's yeah. not like Cardi just walks through and says something like, hey. like she literally <laughs> has dialogue. Thank you. But she like has moments. She has an arc. It's really wonderful. Well, one of the big things to me is, you know, not only was it so much fun to watch, but um, I really like that it could potentially be a kind of Trojan horse to mainstream mm-hmm. audiences for uh, more thoughtful conversations about sex work. Yeah. Um, one of the best things about this film, which I think is also evident from the actual trailer, is that these are strippers, but you also are rooting for them the oh, whole yeah. time. Um, they're more realized people. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to learn about their motivations and yeah. what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so I just really love that there's no point of the movie that like looks down on them no. for their line of work and it gets treated as a job. Yes. And J-Lo's character gives these like great breakdowns about capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's so, very yeah. like a Marxist Trojan horse. Like, yes. you the, and you're going to go become a Marxist at the end. Be like, <laughs> yes, redistribute the wealth. Everyone needs to be paid equally and more fairly than Wall Street. Yes, that would be great. So yeah. it's really lovely and it's based on a really wonderful article that came out in 2015 uh, at the New York Times Magazine yeah. or The Cut. It was it was uh, uh, New York that? Magazine. New York Magazine, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm especially jealous of you today because you get to talk to the director, actually, yes. pretty so, soon. Yes, at the end of the show, I'll be sitting down with Lorene Scafaria, who wrote and directed this film. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to her about all the ins and outs of creating what I think may be one of the most important films to come out this year. I'm just going to say it. I think it's that. I, I support you. Like, it's say be it. That amazing. Say it. Mm. Well, it got us thinking about other uh, real-life stories that could be adapted into movies, since mm-hmm. it is based on a, a real story. And we want to hear from you. What article or story from real life would you would make an amazing movie? Tweet us using the hashtag aim to dm and I thought of one of my favorite pieces of journalism okay. of all time. Uh, it has a little bit more of a serious bent, I think, than okay. this one. Um, it, it's a great piece by Sherry Fink from the New York Times. Won a Pulitzer. It was about uh, Katrina and one hospital's response to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Yes. An amazing piece of uh, narrative journalism. And I was just like, uh, that would be such a compelling That movie. would be. I know so. exactly that story. It would be really, yeah. really good. Uh, one that I have to mention, because we're going to talk about it later, is Caroline Calloway, who's probably trending also on Twitter one, still. Yeah. Um, the influencer on Instagram. And not her downfall, but the complicated story that The Cut just released yesterday that has everyone buzzing. So we'll be talking about that at length a little bit later. So stay tuned for that one. Yeah. Well, at 11.58 a.m. on Tuesday, President Trump tweeted, I informed John Bolton last night that his services are no longer needed at the White House. I disagreed strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration. And therefore, I asked John for his resignation. 
which was given to me this morning. I thank John very much for his service. I will be naming a new national security advisor next week. Mm. 12 minutes later, former national security advisor John Bolton tweeted, I offered to resign last night, and President Trump said, let's talk about it tomorrow. Our own David Mack summed it up. I am messy, and I live for drama. (laughs) And joining us now to break down this mess is senior reporter and world editor for BuzzFeed News, Hayes Brown. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Hi. (sighs) I'm like, I don't even know where to start. So, um, Hayes, just how and why did this happen? So this has been coming for a minute at this point. John Bolt, national security advisor to President Trump, his third national security advisor since taking office. Uh, It was never going to be a really good fit, the two of them. John Bolton is a bureaucratic infighter. He knows how to work the policy levers of government. He spent a lot of time on Fox News between his last stint in government, which was a very short stint as U.N. ambassador under George W. Bush, and his return. Uh, He was on Fox News a lot, where he caught Trump's eye. Uh, But once he came into the White House, after a few good early days, it was very clear within the last couple of months that this was a relationship on the outs where John Bolton was not going to last very long, probably. Mm, So Bolton joined this Trump administration White House in 2018. What were some fears back then of what he might do in that current capacity? So John Bolton is also one of the last, like, uh, really Cold War Republicans in that he believed, and neoconservatives people would call them sometimes, he believed in American power, American strength, and in using the military to try and project that strength overseas. Uh, And he believed that if, you know, America appears weak, then we are weak and people will take advantage of us. So people were afraid of him pulling out of a bunch of treaties, leaving international, making us leave international organizations, uh, pushing for more war and conflict. Uh, as we saw in uh, June when there was uh, John Bolton and a few others in the administration pushed the president towards striking Iran. I remember being on the show for that. Um, but Trump said, nope, we're not going to do that after all. So people were afraid that by this point we would be actually at war with Iran. Uh, thankfully, that did not actually come to pass. But uh, yeah, John Bolton and Trump, uh, they just never really synced up on that. Well, you mentioned Iran, so can you talk to us a little bit more specifically about where Bolton and Trump diverged on some of these issues like Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, and so forth? So Trump, especially in the last year and a half, has been all about deal-making, as you know, we would guess from him. So he's been reaching, he reached out to North Korea. He's had several meetings with Kim Jong-un, which uh, John Bolton has completely disagreed with. He did not want those meetings to happen. Uh, during the last meeting between Trump and Kim at the DMZ between North and South Korea, John Bolton was in Mongolia rather than being at that meeting like you would expect him to be. Uh, when it comes to Venezuela, John Bolton has been a huge supporter of pushing back against communism in in Latin America. He's been yelling about Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba as being a troika of tyranny. But Trump didn't really care that much. And when the push to try and get President Maduro out in Venezuela kind of stalled out earlier this year, Trump got bored with it and kind of started losing patience with John Bolton. Iran, though, uh, at first they synced up. They, uh, John Bolton and Trump both agreed on leaving the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which happened just like less than two months after Bolton came on board. Uh, but where they diverge is Bolton is in support of a soft regime, regime change or hard regime change. He's in favor of switching out the government in Iran and putting some new pro-U.S. government in place. Trump, on the other hand, has been all about lately, he wants to meet with President Rouhani of Iran, something that no U.S. president has done with a leader of Iran since the revolution in 79. So uh, that was a huge clash between the two of them. Mm, well, their most recent clash before he departed was around the Taliban going to Camp David. So tell us about what, how did that contribute to his resignation just yesterday? So that contributed in that, so 
As we learned last weekend, Trump had this big idea of, since there was an initial sort of deal with the Taliban in place, that he wanted to bring them, the Afghan government, to Camp David, finalize the talks, sign something big, and do it uh, relatively soon, before today, before 9-11. And John Bolton was like, uh, no, we are not going to, we should not be pulling out the U.S. military from Afghanistan, uh, telling people we're going to do this, and basically acceding to the Taliban and letting them have free reign of the country. Uh, Bolton won out in that, in that the meeting was scrapped. But that pushback and Trump reading about that pushback in the press really set him off, apparently. And in their last conversation, before the, the night before those tweets yesterday, uh, they were supposed to have a brief discussion about Afghanistan, but it kind of spiraled into a whole, why are you meeting with Iran thing? And Bolton, in his telling, offered to resign. Trump, in his telling, just fired him the next day. Mm-hmm. Well, oftentimes, you know, we see uh, these issues within the Trump White House. Uh, the palace intrigue we see play out over Twitter, like we did yesterday, to see these two going back and forth with each other. Um, but, you know, it got me a, a little disconcerted feeling about actually the U.S.'s standing in the world and, and what the implications are uh, of Bolton's departure. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, on the one hand, it's not a great sign of stability in the U.S. I mean, uh, you have an administration where you have a lot of high-level national security roles that are just unfilled or filled with acting people still, uh, three years into the administration almost. Uh, On the other side of it, though, I mean, Bolton was, you know, someone who's very aggressive. He believes in the use of military force, which never really synced with Trump. So I think that we can say that it's... uh, bit of a split the difference kind of situation. Bolton's no longer encouraging Trump to push for war, but his replacement so far, the acting deputy, the acting national security advisor, was also on the board of a very anti-Muslim group that uh, Bolton is also involved with. So we'll see how that one plays out. Mm, well, we will see. Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Mm, that situation, just it's on reality TV. And I have to say, David Mack, I've just realized, is uh, he tweets out walrus. He does tweet, tweet out walrus. Memes every time. Yeah, every time there's a John Bolton. That's yeah. amazing. Well, all right, moving on. Here's a tweet from Brad Moss. 18 years, it's been 18 years since 9-11. It still feels like it was yesterday. I was waking up in my studio apartment across from the State Department to discover the world had changed. Kids who were born that year are now old enough to fight in that war that was started that day. I mean, it's really surreal yeah. that... It has been 18 years, and now these kids are legal adults yes. and will, could go to Afghanistan and you know elsewhere. It's, uh, it, I mean, it's something that has become so commonplace for us to think about, not even think about, but not think about every day. You mean a war has raged for 18 years. That means every day we get up, we do the show that someone is fighting across the country uh, on something that happened when we were in school. Yeah. Um, so just the idea that the world... When we say the world changed, it really did. We've been in a constant state of war. You know, this monitoring of, uh, of, of technology and national security has become heightened and surveillance has become just a way of life. So we have a whole generation, Generation Z, that's not lived in the world without mm-hmm. war in America. And that, to me, is just profound. It's profound to me because I had family members fight in the war. Um, you have too. And, you know, it's just something that we just kind of live with and mm-hmm. keep moving through. And even down to Bolton visiting with Trump mm-hmm. and them fighting about he doesn't want to pull out and wants to keep troops there. It just means that, like, this is just something that we live with. Everywhere. Yeah, it's ongoing. And this is a hard day for a lot of folks. And, uh, you know, we really want to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And right now, actually, the memorial ceremony uh, is going on where they are uh, reciting the names of everyone. You can see uh, right there that's happening. Um, and as a journalist, I have to say, uh, over yeah, the years, it's, it's been interesting to see how the coverage of this has shifted every single year. Like, I remember in the first couple of years after the attack, it would be, like, wall-to-wall coverage mm-hmm. every single day. And now... 
you know, sometimes it's like a mention or no. more of a footnote and acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, I just want to say for anybody out there who is struggling to get through today, our, our hearts are with you. Yes, for sure, for sure. And, and reach out to people that you love um, and that are near you because they definitely need it today. Mm-hmm. Well, up next, I'm joined by podcast host, John Lovett, who's going to help me get through fire tweets. Stay tuned. for Fire Tweets, and today I'm joined by John Lovett, host of the podcast Love It or Leave It and Pod Save America on Crooked Media, and he's a former speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> oh, good. I'm so glad. Well, um, I'm going to show you how to do these fire tweets. Basically, we hit the button, read the tweet, react. Okay. Are you ready to get started? Ready. Okay, I have the first one. Juice Wayne, you tweeted, this iPhone 11 got my tripop phobia acting up like a motherfucker. Y'all can keep this three-eyed demon phone. I'm good. Have you seen this phone, the new lenses? So it, this all, yeah, they, they added a third camera. Yeah, you can see that's, that's, the, that's the new lens. And people are uncomfortable with people this. People are uncomfortable. There's something called tripop phobia that makes people Fear of holes. Something like that. Fear of holes. Or like, sh- I think shapes that are shapes. close together. Shapes that are close together. Yeah. I think everybody should calm down. <laughs> uh, the iPhone looks exactly the same. It has looked exactly the same for a decade now. It's all chill out. Okay, we'll come down. All right, you have the next week. Okay, so I just hit this hit button. Hit the button and then read it. Stephen Colbert, you tweeted, starting a Twitter feud with Chrissy Teigen is like trying to fight a hurricane with a Sharpie. May I remind you that she called Trump a pussy-ass bitch? Yeah, you know, it's funny picking a fight with Chrissy Teigen and John Legend. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about was that, you know, he picks these fights, but then... Everyone feuds on Twitter, but then you look at Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, and they just seem like happy people mm-hmm. with like a really cool life, mm-hmm. and they're both so good looking. Yeah, and they just they're just living and like enjoying time with their children, and being famous and mm-hmm. doing good work. Mm-hmm. And he's just on the toilet tweeting <laughs> at them, and it's like you can't win a Twitter feud when ultimately the person you're fighting is yourself and a little bit your father. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's all profound. Fred, all Fred Trump had to do is one time. Fred Trump had to take, sit Trump down one time and say, tell your brother you're sorry. That was it. And maybe I love you. <laughs> and yet we're all subject to this. Yeah. Yeah. All right, next tweet. All right, I'm ready. Roland, you tweeted, the good news is that there still is time for ABC to add John Bolton to the cast of Dancing with the Stars. What do I you hope. make of, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, you know, what do you do when two people you love get in a fight? You know what I mean? Like, two people that are just such good people, <laughs> and you're like, can't you just see that, like, if you could just get past your differences? I will say, uh, John Bolton, <laughs> there's, like, a real Housewives quality to all of this. Yes, yes. But it's as if, you know, instead of trying to start an interior design business, He's trying to start a war with Iran. Hmm. Yeah. That's that, all I have that's, to say about yeah. that. Should I hit this yeah. button again? Yeah, yeah. We're going to do this one together because this mm. is the tweet of the day. Ready? Mm. One, two, three. So you read this one. Oh, there's a poem about a king that claims to be the best at everything, even though he is a terrible and he's, 
and he is challenged to a fishing competition and is defeated and loses his kingdom. Ring a bell for anyone. Who, who could you be talking so, about? <laughs> so I was talking about Trump, but there is a poem called The Vain King by a, poem named, by a poet named Henry Van Dyke, who I have never heard of and only found because I was Googling poems for keywords because sometimes late at night, you know, you're watching TV, you want to read some poetry. <laughs> Maybe you've, I'm not going to, you get okay. it. And yeah. it but, yeah. but read that poem. It's crazy. It's about a king who thinks he's the best at everything and challenges a fisherman to a fishing competition, but it turns out, well, you have to read it. I don't want to spoil yeah. it. All right. Well, we'll put a pin in that one. We'll read that poem, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of your work. Um, okay. Of course, you're in town for Love It or Leave It at Radio City. Love It or Leave Musical. It at Radio City. Yeah, and um, each week and with each show, you take on a big topic in the news. Of course, tomorrow is another Democratic debate. This time, we'll get to see uh, Sanders, uh, Warren, and Biden all on the stage together. What are you going to be looking out for? So, this is the first time that Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden have been on the stage at the same time. You know, people have noted this race has kind of gotten, it's sort of uh, shaken out to be, we have these sort of three leading candidates, Biden and then Warren and Sanders, and everybody else has kind of lost some, some, some headway. Uh, and this is the first time all three of those people will be on stage at the same time. And you know, I think there's a lot of the coverage of politics, especially Democratic primary politics, is very much about like tactics and strategies. But ultimately what we have is three people with distinct messages, worldviews, and directions they want to take the country. And this will be the first time we see those three ideas on stage at the same time, plus a few other candidates who are viewing this as an opportunity to kind of create one more spot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's only the future of the world at stake. You know, that's it. We're only trying not to pick much, somebody. Much, great. We're only trying to pick the, the person who can win and, and lead the country and save us from another four years of whatever. I feel comforted already. I, well, I tweeted out yesterday that you were going to be on the show today. Got okay. a lot of questions from uh, your dedicated listeners and fans. Um, so I'm going to get to some of them. Tanusha tweeted, what's your ideal number one issue for the next president's first 100 days? Uh, well, you know, I feel like there's two things sitting side by side that are related. One is climate change and the other is just defending our democracy. And, you know, we won't be able to solve climate change until we do st take steps to solve, to fix our democracy. So to me, like those two things side by side, you can't really do one without the other, but that that's, mm. those feel to me the most pressing. We're in a moment where there are myriad threats against voting rights, against the mm -hmm. stability of our elections, against uh, uh, our basic ability to choose our government. So. And if, and if climate change is going to be one of the greatest threats we face and a committed uh, minority is going to be against action, uh, supported by a massive sort of corporate organization, a corporate propaganda network, then we have to take both of those things mm. on at once. Mm. Um, we got some questions. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. We got some questions. Uh, if you have any plans on uh, being a politician yourself, uh, Kate tweeted, would you ever consider running for office? How do you think working with so many passionate and diverse <laughs> activists has changed your approach to politics? I don't. I think the electability argument on me is, is absurd. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think, this is an acquired taste. <laughs> this isn't. I mean, look, it's good to know your audience, but, uh, you know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, what, what we've gotten to do, you know, we do this thing called Vote Save America, which is, you know, it helps uh, raise money for a bunch of different races. We've raised, you know, we raised millions of dollars for, for candidates in 2018. We're gonna do it again with a couple funds for, for local races, Senate races, House races, the president, presidential race. We worked with a ton of activists. And the one thing that I do think has been really exciting is when you do these shows, when we've traveled across the country, Twitter isn't real life, and people are much more positive, enthusiastic, and wanna get involved more than they just wanna kind of 
be angry online, and it's good to remember that sometimes. As much as I love to be angry online, it's one of my favorite things to do. If it wasn't, why would I do it all the time? <laughs> why would I do it all the time? Mm -hmm. My actions tell me that I love it. <laughs> I love being angry online. Yeah. Um, Izzy wanted to know a little bit about your wardrobe. This can be our last question. Um, why do you rag on your co-hosts for their heteronormative outfits? Well, you only have two articles of gay clothing and it's pink shorts and rainbow pants you've worn once. Oh, and what do you use on your hair? It's amazingly springy. <laughs> so, uh, fuck you. No, the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I uh, have, first of all, I, I have all my clothing is gay clothing. 100% of my clothing is gay clothing. That from the black t-shirts to the pink t-shirts to the rainbow pants, which I have worn, I don't even know what camera to go to. Multiple go to times. <laughs> I wore them multiple times. I sat across from Senator Amy Klobuchar in a pair of rainbow pants. And I'll wear them again. I'll wear them again. They're just a little showy. Why do I attack my co-hosts for wearing heteronormative blue? Because I need to find something. They're two very handsome, smart, capable people. I so mean, what am I supposed to do? I always say, what am I supposed to do? What are you do? supposed to do? What are you, well, thank you for uh, clarifying that. And matter. I never insult Dan. <laughs> Dan's perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. This thank is you really, for really having fun. me. Um, I wish we had some more time, but love it or leave it. I'll just will stay. Be please, live at Radio City Music Hall this Friday. Tickets are on sale now. You know what's we're funny? Anthony is up next. There's a vibe of rushing to the commercial, but this is for Twitter. There's nothing, nothing it's can true. go wrong. What's going to happen? I mean, what, what, I don't know. I, I'll like, just stay. We can just stay. Bison had the Powers book, too. She's coming up. She is. She's, yeah. Oh, okay, Cam Williams tweeted, I have seen all of Unbelievable. It's compelling. Where most crime shows cut, this one keeps going, so you see every step of a rape case. Prepare for Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver to be your new fave detectives. I am so excited to be sitting down with Emmy-winning actors Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver, two of the stars of Unbelievable. Who is this person Wait. tweeting, and how have they seen it? It doesn't I, start till Friday. I know. Well, there's some. I've seen it too. I will say. Yeah, but you're in this position. Who this is that? Is, he was a media critic as well, okay, and right. so he has seen it as well. And I will say, you will all be obsessed with this show. It is so good, so thoughtfully done, mm -hmm. and just really like gripping in a way that I haven't seen uh, from. I, I'm watching it, thinking. We don't see many shows that just concentrate on sexual assault, apart from SVU, hmm. but like, why do you think that is? What, what, what is it about? Well, this is a true story. Yeah. Um, but I also, I think it, it focuses on personal freedom and mm. justice, and um, it's, it is a horrible subject matter, but it's a really important one, and it's, it is beautifully crafted and told. Mm -hmm. Mary, I was struck watching the show uh, between the difference in the sort of energy between the male detectives who dominate the first episode and then immediately your character comes in completely completely different energy interacting with mm, so uh, the victim empathy. in in oh. the case yeah uh, i mean that, that was obviously intentional right the kind of yeah i mean again it's it's based on a true story so um it's taken from what actually happened but i think an interesting nuance about this is that the first person who doesn't believe her the first seed of doubt is planted by uh, one of her foster moms, mm -hmm. a woman who's mm -hmm. also um, a sexual assault survivor. Mm -hmm. So um, although I do think the gender can play a role in it, um, it's not the only thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about the preparation that you guys did for this. 
Um, well, there's a, this is based on a ProPublica mm -hmm. and Marshall Project article um, that was expanded into um, a book called uh, A False Report, and I found that book really useful. I didn't read that. Mm. But did you meet with the detectives? <laughs> I did read the ProPublica uh, article, and we didn't, I, I didn't meet the... No, I don't think that that was an option. Mm -hmm. I think that because this was based on right. their work life, that right. this was not something they could actually, yeah. Talk about. But it was reiterated that... Well, at least my character was an amalgamation. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yes. So it wasn't yes. like a direct right. lift of an yeah. exact right. person. There were life right. rights. Having said that, certain people did have certain requirements about how I was going to play the character, apparently. What do you mean? Oh, really? I, I needed to be bitching and badass. That's what I was told. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, you were. Mission accomplished, <laughs> I'll say. I tried my best. I'll say. <laughs> uh, you hit on one of the points, the idea there that one of the earlier seeds of doubt, as you said, yeah. comes from um, one of the women in the mm -hmm. show, the, her foster mother as well. Yeah. What What is it about kind of... Um, <laughs> The era that we're living in, in the sense of we have the Me Too movement, believing women, it's such a central um, tenant of this show. Mm -hmm. um, why do people struggle with that, do you think? As you well, said... I think women's experiences are often not given priority. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, that could be one of the places that it starts. Mm -hmm. And I think that we live in a patriarchal society. <laughs> so the people in power are going to centralize themselves. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, what about you, Tony? Do you think uh, the conversation, as you said, has changed a little bit in the last couple of years about... Oh, it's changing. changing, at least that people are open to talking about mm -hmm. it, but I think there's a basic um, <laughs> imbalance. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a misunderstanding about the word equality or, or realising that it actually should be demanded mm. upon, you know. Yeah. We're all equal and, and society is just not built that way. And right. it's hopefully changing. And what, what should we be doing when the men in our lives are accused of this kind of behaviour or, or poor behaviour in this sort of Me Too era? I'm thinking the last week's been dominated by headlines about Scarlett Johansson and Woody Allen um, and her defence of him and everything that happens. I know she's co-starring with you in an upcoming movie. Is it when the men in our lives are accused of stuff like this, what, what, where do our, what do we do in a sense? Careful investigation. Mm. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar with what you're talking mm -hmm. about, but um, I do think that, um, uh, you know, there's a whole movement mm -hmm. called Start by Believing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a useful thing to keep in mind. And I think that that is being pushed to the forefront because for so long, uh, the opposite has been the case. Mm -hmm. Not just dismissal, but, um, you know, villainization mm -hmm. or re-traumatization, mm -hmm. um, traumatization, which I think is one of the things that this show is trying to... Uh, highlight, Definitely. hopefully in a nuanced way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, justice has to prevail and whatever mm -hmm. that whatever that yeah. takes. Yeah, and that's what, as you said, what this show is about and the search for that justice and it is so good and you guys are so good at it and uh, I'm just getting her name, Caitlin as well, who's new yeah. to me, but she is astonishing She's yeah. very good. as Marie and I'm predicting that all of you will be up for Emmys in a few, what is it, a few months, next time next year. Uh, Merritt, I'm wondering, will you be repeating your iconic Emmy speech of what was it, eight I've words or something it since like that? I've watched it working with you. It's hilarious. Oh, okay. Very you. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, there you go. She's met me and she sees me. Apparently. <laughs> I feel seen right now, and that feels fine. For those who don't know, I think you kind of got up on stage and just said, "I have to leave," and walked straight yeah. off. And what was going through your head at the time? That's literally what was going. Through your head at the <laughs> you stage. were so overwhelmed. Uh, yeah, what you saw is what you got, and what you got was what I am. Pretty oh, collective. Of I feel like Dr. Seuss. Yeah, <laughs> there's your answer. Okay, fair enough. Not a wordsmith. Uh, Tony, 
<laughs> I love you. Uh, I had to talk, Tony, about uh, some of the roles that you've had in, like, you've just had an incredible career. I grew up watching Muriel's Wedding and Aww. all these things are just How like... How old are you? I'm 31. Okay. And so these movies are just in Sixth Sense and Little Miss Sunshine. What, what are, are there films in your career that you look at and think, that was, that was a turning point, or this is where I went this way and this is where I went this way? Well, there are films that are more personally satisfying mm-hmm. where you establish friendships mm-hmm. or, or get something really, um, you know, some challenging work that you can kind of sink your teeth into. Um, and then there are those which, yeah, I guess pr- pretty much you feel like something turns a corner, but that's an external thing that I have no mm. control or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. overall care about, really. Working with her was a very big draw for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. It was a very huge honour. Yeah. That makes sense. Did not disappoint. Uh, do you th- just because I brought up Muriel's wedding, I have to ask, mm-hmm. like, it, for me, it is such a, like, snapshot of an era in Australia, yes, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I wonder, is it something like that? Is that impossible to reboot? Or do you think that that... To reboot? To How? reboot, to bring her back, to find out what she's up to now? Or is it, is, is she lives... Oh, only like, there's going to be a sequel all these I, years yeah, later? Yeah, come on, people. Well, do you know, I saw the musical, not that it's a sequel, right. but it really, that story is just so... Incredible. Um, yeah. it, it, it in itself is a story about this girl escaping the cycle of abuse in her family, mm-hmm. um, but it's told in a you know fun a fun way. Yes. Oh, it's the darkest comedy ever made, I think. But it's been <laughs> twenty five years. It's incredible. Yeah, and people still love it, and that that in itself is I'm hugely honoured to be involved with it because of that. With any story that continues to speak to people is amazing. Would you say she's the one that the character that people bring up to you the most? Maybe, yeah. There's a handful, and she's definitely Who are the others? Favorite. Oh, well, I get a lot of your terrible Muriel and I see dead people. Um, <laughs> I did that. I don't see either of those lines, by the way. <laughs> you chew your face. It was terrible. Oh, no, oh, what, which line? She was immediately mortified. It was, I was like, uh, oh. <laughs> and you were like, what happened? And I was like, I got to say something. I was about to, oh, no. And you were like, what, what, what? Like, you thought I was having, like, an aneurysm. And I was oh. like, I have to say, you're terrible, Muriel. <laughs> You know, listen, to uh, not a small group of people, that's a big deal to get to, like, Muriel, the actual Muriel. So the, and I got to Muriel, Muriel. I, uh, and I hold it in my heart. So Can cute. I hear it now with the accent attempt as well? Like, I, That was as exposing that I, okay. I can handle. Please don't make it do that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'll say it to you once the interview is wrapped because I'm not going to miss my chance. Apparently, you're only going to miss one it. It was lovely. Life. It was very meaningful. Good. For okay. Me. Well, can I try? It? Can I get it? Go right. for it. All right. You're terrible, Muriel. That's pretty close. That's, that's the you're drag. so cute. <laughs> I'm so nervous. You had to keep talking afterwards. I'm so nervous. I know. Oh I know. I know. That, I know. I just, that's a life. Look, he's gone already. I am. I'm so nervous. Oh, so I know. I know. It was so beautiful. What's happening? It was so beautiful. I was like, what? And then I was like, Right afterwards, oh, like, wow. I was so nervous. It's all coming out now, Merit. We are in this exclusive club. Merit and I are together. Tony Merit, yeah. thank you so much. Thanks uh, for having all us. All eight episodes yeah. of Unbelievable will be streaming on Netflix on this Friday. Up next, more AM to DM. Stay tuned. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry, Merit. Here's a tweet from Twitter Moments. In an essay for The Cut, writer Natalie Beach details her personal and professional relationship with controversial social media influencer Caroline Calloway. Here's a tweet from Thomas Violence. My big takeaway from the Caroline Calloway piece is that you can get a six-figure book deal from doing Instagram posts that are a photo of you next to the Arc de Triomphe, captioned Paris. One of the most French cities in Europe. <laughs> and here's a tweet from Jesus Nice. This Caroline Calloway story is white Twitter's Popeye's sandwich. Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? It is fact, because Twitter, you all have been riding this for the past 
I would say 12 hours, at least 18 hours, we'll say, because the girls are shook, because the girls love a good scam story. They sure do. To do too. So what was your thoughts when you first saw this story? Okay, well, first of all, uh, I only learned about who Caroline Calloway is when this story came out. I was not <laughs> acquainted with this world of Instagram. And it's an, it's an interesting mm-hmm. story, because it is a little bit complicated, yes. right? Like, um, on the one hand, uh, one could say that Caroline is exploitative of mm-hmm. uh, the writer of this story, and that she really uh, relies on her and and she doesn't get a lot of credit, that sort of thing. On the other hand, you could also say the writer of this story, uh, she really exploited Caroline yeah. um, to, to, for her own ends. Yeah, I mean, it really, like, re- I had to read it twice to understand that, you know, Cal- Caroline Calloway is not someone I knew who was before, but she represents a whole flock of people mm-hmm. I do know, both professionally and personally, of Instagram stars that are famous for no reason and have all this capital, mm-hmm. um, but then also aren't the real person behind them. You know, Caroline Calloway, we have learned, uh, did not write her own book. Uh, she was not paying this writer to ghostwrite the proposal. Mm-hmm. And then this writer is now exposing her, but in a really interesting way that shows kind of like how complicated when we kind of build these influencers up and want to work for them, um, how it gets when like they're not who they think we think mm-hmm. they are. They don't live up to the hype that we've built around them. Um, so I do think we, many of us, myself included, look at many influencers, especially during this New York Fashion Week, and think you girls are not actually who you post about. Uh, and I think we take great schadenfreude in seeing them be torn apart, and Caroline Calloway is currently being torn apart across the internet. Well, I think schadenfreude is like the operating mm-hmm. word here because also, uh, you know, Caroline Calloway was supposed to put on these workshops that people purchased mm-hmm. tickets to. Uh, so you might say she scammed people out of their money. Um, she also uh, apparently purchased Instagram followers to kind of get her initial push. Uh, at least that's what the story says. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there is a piece of that that people like uh, watching. They get mm-hmm. some kind of enjoyment about seeing someone who uh, did these things, yeah. uh, you know, kind of fall. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true, like, we, for a long time now, have been obsessed with various kinds of scamming yeah. stories. And a, uh, and a Delvey. Delvey, yeah, the yeah. famous fake heiress who is now in jail, I believe. <laughs> Like, yeah. like literally facing huge charges against her. Um, but it does seem like we love to see the downfall of these people. But I guess like, I don't want to be too pessimistic here, but it's because we think like, we're like, nothing is that perfect and it all should be exposed. It feels like a very apocalyptic way of looking at these So guys. my theory is not only that we enjoy watching the scammers themselves fall, but we actually, I think, get enjoyment out of hearing about the people who have been scammed because mm-hmm. we like to think of ourselves as being smarter than being the ones who would get scammed. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reading, I was like, how would you fall? Like, what, what is this person posting that is of value? How yeah. could you possibly fall for this? So I think that there is some piece yeah. of enjoyment there. Girl, like the big part of the story for me was when she was offered $375,000 for a book deal and she promised her 35% of the deal, but didn't get paid at, at any moment. Girl, get your, you should get some money up front. Don't do work unless you're getting paid for it. Like, yeah. don't do that. Yeah. Big rule here. Well, let's take it to the timeline, y'all. Who is your favorite scammer you've read about? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Well, up next, Hay sits down with former U.S. Ambassador Samantha Power. Welcome back. Former U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power has written a powerful new memoir about her time in the Obama administration, being an immigrant from Ireland, motherhood, and much more. Ambassador Power joins me now to talk about her latest book called The Education of an Idealist. Good morning, Ambassador. Great to see you, Hayes. Great to have you here. I'm so glad you could actually join us uh, to talk about this great book. Uh, So, like I said, you talk a lot about your time uh, immigrating to America from Ireland. We had a closer look at this story. Thinking back on that time as you wrote the memoir, uh, what was the biggest culture shock that you had when you moved from, you know, Ireland to the U.S.? Um, Everything was about a thousand times larger Mm. than anything I recalled from Ireland. I came when I was nine. Mm -hmm. Um, The buildings were taller. The airport had, 
you know, even just landing, had a zillion carousels, you know, where the bags were coming. This was just in Pittsburgh, which mm -hmm. I thought was the biggest airport in the history of the world. <laughs> later, it was not. There were other bigger ones. Um, but also, you know, this is a country, and notwithstanding the fact that this is now uh, a conception of America that's under attack, which I never thought I would see happen, but it is a country where you have the sense everywhere that the sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's just part of the American narrative and the idea that you can do anything. I mean, I grew up dreaming of playing center field for the Pittsburgh Pirates, <laughs> and that did not seem crazy, uh, even though I quickly tapered off my Little League career. Um, so I think that was it, just the sense of boundlessness mm. of America. So I once saw your son at a Christmas party at the ambassador's residence in, back in 2015, I think, riding around on the giant giraffe. We have a picture of him actually there uh, at the Waldorf Astoria. Your book, you talk a lot about being a mom in these high-profile jobs. What was the most challenging part of juggling those two things? Yeah, I mean, I made that choice, which, uh, you know, I, I wasn't, initially wasn't sure that that was the direction I would take the memoir, but I, I realized just how many people, women, men alike, parents are feeling like they're falling down either in their work lives or at home mm -hmm. because of that tension between them. So I thought, I'll just open Sesame and, and lay it all out there. And it was tense. I mean, you know, often the things that were pulling me away from my kids sound sort of rarefied, you know, a chemical weapons attack in Syria. Right. Or the president calling an emergency NSC about the rise of ISIS or campaigning for the Paris Climate Agreement. And, it, you know, but fundamentally the, the, the tension that I feel inside is like the tension that every parent feels. And what I tried to do is I tried to bring my kids to as many things as I could. Mm -hmm. uh, probably years later in therapy, my son would be lying <laughs> on the couch and saying, you know, I learned, I learned about ISIS about when I was six. Um, <laughs> that may not have been my best move. But, um, but he was frustrated. And for much of his, you know, six, seven, eight, mm -hmm. or yeah, six, seven, eight, he was blaming Vladimir Putin for mommy's absence. Oh. So at least I had a scapegoat. Um, <laughs> It's pretty, those Russians. Yeah. Oh. Um, but anyway, but I hope it offers some consolation that no matter, you know, one of the themes of the book is never compare your insides to somebody else's outsides. You know, everybody else sort of looks like they have their act together. And, and just by, by opening up the sort of inner narrative in one's own head, just to, again, to acknowledge that we're all sort of in the same boat, trying to make, make things somehow come together. Make things together. happen, make things work. Yeah, make things work. So... After college, you spent time as a journalist in the Balkans, which, and seeing the atrocities there, formed the basis of your first book, A Problem from Hell. So you had this reputation when you got to the administration, especially as you were an ambassador. Uh, what was it, how did you handle the pressure of that expectation of you to be the most forceful person talking about human rights in the room at any given time versus having to deal with political realities? How, was it personally draining to try and thread that needle? Well, I'd always prided myself on understanding the world as it is and not having a kind of airy-fairy view of what goes on around me. I mean, the fact that I had cut my teeth as a war correspondent meant that two things. One, that evil and exposure to evil was something that I had had in the Balkans where they were setting up concentration camps and rape camps. But I was also very familiar, having written A Problem from Hell, of just how hard it is to push human rights issues and to push for human consequences to be factored into American decision-making. So at least I wasn't like, oh, shocked, shocked, mm. you know, this is hard. I kind of went in thinking, okay, this is going to be hard. And I was really lucky because I had President Obama had my back, which mm -hmm. isn't always the case. Often the human rights advisor sort of languishes right. off in their own little place. And he always wanted me in the room and he wanted my perspective. And when he didn't agree with me, he would always sort of make a point of still meeting the argument head on and usually trying to synthesize 
that perspective with, with other perspectives. But my fundamental argument and belief is just that how a regime treats its own people is a decent predictor of the kind of security partner they're going to be. I mean, it's no coincidence that the Saudis are on the one chopping up a dissident in a consulate mm-hmm. somewhere and, you know, really soiling America's reputation because of what they're doing in Yemen. You know, it, when, when, a, when a government behaves, again, in predictably abusive ways, that should give us pause. Mm-hmm. And we should understand that they're looking out for their interests in their way. And we have to look out for our interests, which include preserving the integrity of our reputations and so forth. So, uh, you know, when, when a government commits abuse, terrorists tend to take advantage of that, recruiting people, you know, who feel excluded. We saw that with the Iraqi government. We certainly saw it with the Syrian government. And so the idea that human rights are sort of on one side and Mm -hmm. steely realism is on the other, I think, is mistaken. And in fact, if we could get better, if if governments would reform around the world and look out for the rights and the welfare of Mm -hmm. their people, you'd have far more stability over time. So you personally, though, you managed to, over your time in government, manage to like Keep that relatively in check internally. Not really. (laughs) I mean, I'm giving you, you're right. I went right to the sort of the theory of the case. But, you know, it it, it was hard. I mean, especially often our fiercest critics were people who I would have been with Mm -hmm. as a a critic, probably on the outside. And, you know, sometimes arguments I lost internally, Mm -hmm. I would be the one defending it externally. Right. And I knew better than anybody. I was achingly familiar, you know, with the rebuttals to my argument because mm-hmm. they were the rebuttals I had offered inside. But I, I, I think, you know, the reason it was still such an amazingly meaningful experience is for all of that, we had a president, you know, who had, with whom I, I, I basically shared his values, shared his approach to international affairs. Um, we had a president who wanted you know, again, dissent and, mm-hmm. and, and dispute even to play itself out in front of him. And we had a president who was willing to lead the world on behalf of uh, preventing climate change, on behalf of ending an Ebola epidemic, on behalf of peacefully diffusing Iran's nuclear program. So, you know, for all the, the mini defeats or the sense of, gosh, I wish we would do things a little bit differently here or there, the composite was mm-hmm. something I really believed in. And, and that was a great feeling. So you talked about a lot of victories in the Obama administration just now, but I want to talk quickly about two other policy choices that were made. One was to increase ties between the U.S. and Myanmar. The other was the entire U.S. policy on Syria. Uh, given how things are today with the ethnic cleansing against the Rohingya in Myanmar and Assad still in power in Syria, if you can go back and suggest two, a cha- one change for each of those mm-hmm. situations, what would they be for each? Well... To be clear, of mm-hmm. course, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I, I do think that while I think the uh, the Obama administration deserves a lot of credit for opening up relations with Cuba, mm-hmm. for being willing to talk to Iran, and, and over many years of painstaking negotiations, culminate in the nuclear accord on Myanmar, we were so anxious to see progress mm-hmm. that I think we moved too quickly to lift all of the sanctions, and without that lever. And, and we, I write about this in the book, but we, we kind of entrusting Aung San Suu Kyi mm-hmm. that because she was this great human rights icon that she would necessarily be somebody who would also look out for ethnic minorities. I think that was a mistake. But entrusting her also that it was better to just go all in mm-hmm. on liberalization, we gave up a critical lever. That isn't to say that history would look different right. had we not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think one of the other 
things that made the military regime feel um, emboldened or home alone mm -hmm. was just the Trump administration's lack of a coherent right. foreign policy generally. And so there was just a sense that who's going to stop us and nobody's going to lead the world in even vocally condemning this. And, and in that sense, the military regime was right. But, but just to, to retain those levers when you have them, mm -hmm. because uh, I think the U.S. government needs a dimmer switch, is right. one of the things I say in the book. And on Syria? And on Syria, I mean, I think the critical moment was just after I got into my job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd been in the position for just uh, less than a month when Assad gassed 1,400 people, uh, the most harrowing images we saw in the entire duration of the conflict, probably. And President Obama did come out and say we were going to use military force and then reroute through mm -hmm. Congress. And I think looking back, and I'm sure he would say the same thing, what we should have done is if we were going to go to Congress, go to Congress from the outset mm -hmm. before we had gone public to the world that we were prepared to use military force or at least have counted the votes to know how it was going to turn out because right. what we've seen is time and again, Congress is just not owning up to its responsibility mm -hmm. to be part of the foreign policy conversation and to, and to authorize the use of force, which is what constitutionally they should be part of doing. So speaking of the use of force, a former person who held your job once, John Bolton, out yesterday at the White House. What was your reaction to hearing that news? You know, mixed. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, I think it's extremely important that the President of the United States have around him people who are willing to challenge him and uh, to not just go along to get along. And I worry that now the circle around Trump has shrunk to just yes men, people who, you know, Trump says mirror, mirror in the, on the wall, how <laughs> handsome am I today and how wonderful is my strategic approach. And people say, oh, Mr. President, you're so handsome and your, your strategic approach is brilliant. Spot Machiavellian, <laughs> you know, Machiavelli has nothing on you. So now we have more of that, more yes men, more sycophants, and that's very worrying because these decisions are so hard and the stakes are so high. On the other hand, Bolton was, there's no secret, his entire career he's been, he's over-relied on military force. He supported the invasion of Iraq. He wanted to bomb Iran mm -hmm. not that long ago. He invoked the threat of military force around Venezuela. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in that sense, at least that voice on a number of key challenges is now out of the room. But he was somebody who who also was nervous about sucking up to Kim Jong-un, right. sucking up to the Taliban before the Taliban had made the kinds of concessions that were needed. And so, again, uh, it's mixed. mixed and, and the instability of having three <laughs> national security advisors in you know, a little more than two and a half years the, and, and the vacancy, along with the vacancies at the Department of Homeland Security, we have no mm -hmm. secretary, deputy secretary, we have no director of national intelligence, no mm -hmm. deputy director of national intelligence, and so many vacancies at the Defense Department at the highest level. I mean, this is not a way to run uh, an operation, a national security operation. So you've been pretty forward about saying that Trump needs to be out of office. Are, have any of the Democratic candidates for 2020 caught your eye yet? Have any of them? Well, they, they, they they've all out? caught my eye. But have, There's so many to Have any reached out to you, though, to try and garner your advice and your help on the yeah, campaign? Yeah, I've been in touch with a few of them. And they're, they're I'm not going to uh, go into specifics, no. but they're, they're, they, you know, many of them complement one another. And I think one disappointment, but it's not all that surprising, is how little national security and foreign mm -hmm. policy has been part of the debate. I mean, it speaks to where the American people are and what mm -hmm. they're very focused on, on health care, immigration questions, of course, the state mm -hmm. of the economy and, and all of Trump's own goals as it relates to, to So you're not joining wars. any of them anytime soon? I'm, I'm, you know, my real belief, Hayes, honestly, and your audience is kind of perfect for this, but is that 
the way we're going to change our country is we're going to bring more people into the enterprise of de democratic accountability, into the enterprise of either being a journalist and holding government accountable or being in public life, community service, public service, running for elective office, being on the school board. And this is a book that tries to show that for all the ups and downs that we talked about mm -hmm. and all of the I wish we'd done this or that or the other thing, mm -hmm. that the sense of purpose and meaning and the impact you can have in getting involved uh, in public life and not just being on your phone, but right. looking up and saying, okay, if I want the planet to stop warming, I got to figure out how to put people in office who are going to mm -hmm. make that their mission as well, which I see young people doing, but I want to show that it's, you know, again, that, that, that at, even when you reach like the rarefied level of being a cabinet level official, you still have doubts, right. you still question whether what you're doing is sufficient in light of the scale of the problems around you. And so for now, I'm really focusing on trying to, you know, use one person's story. It happens to be mine for good or bad, <laughs> alas. Uh, but to draw more people into this enterprise. Mm -hmm. Because the way we're going to change our country is we're going to get the kind of people who care and not the people who are out for themselves uh, to be in the business of changing our country. Well, good luck to you, Ambassador. Thank you so much again for That's joining us today. It's, it's been a great, great conversation. See. The Education of an Idealist is out now. Stay tuned for more am to dm Ira Madison tweeted, Hustlers was a joy. Jennifer Lopez is a beast. Cardi is a natural talent. Seeing a movie like this with a woman, Lorraine Scafaria, behind the camera gave it such a different energy than you traditionally get in a genre. Men like Soderbergh and Scorsese have made their own, and Lorraine Scafaria, the director of Hustlers, joins me now, and I am so excited to talk with you today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here, and you know, thank you for coming during a week in which everyone is just so hungry to see this film, and everyone, you're going to love it. I know it for sure. But let's jump into what it was like behind the scenes. So the high genre has been defined by so many men um, for many, many years. When you got the script, what made you want to really lean into this with women at the forefront? Um, well, I read the article, oh, um, uh, uh, and I was just so excited about the epic nature of the story. Mm -hmm. I was obviously excited about so many themes that it touched upon, um, everything from the American dream mm -hmm. to gender as it relates to the economy and capitalism, and there was a great friendship story mm -hmm. there. And um, so I was just really drawn to so much about it, knew I wanted to adapt it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I tackled that, the subject because it was like this world that I felt like people think they know, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think they've really seen it from the dancer's point of view. No, and so, um, or when they have, it's mm -hmm. a little bit different than this. So I, I really wanted to just tell a human story. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it, goes from there and it, and it turns into a crime story, of course. Um, and that was also really exciting to me to, to see women in a, in a genre that they're usually left out of. Yeah, and what was incredible about the genre is that we've seen heist films or crime films that have uh, exotic dancers, but they're usually, as you said, their stories aren't really fleshed out. And so much about this film is not so much about the heist, but about their relationship. Yeah. What was the most exciting part of, for you to explore these types of women's relationships in this space? Just to see all different kinds of women and how uh, they approach the job. I mean, obviously, we all have really different experiences, mm -hmm. but we also have a collective experience, so that was really exciting. Um, obviously, casting Jennifer and Constance in these two roles. <laughs> um, they had such incredible chemistry together. I, I met them separately and kind of just imagined mm -hmm. uh, the two of them together. Um, there's a scene where the two of them uh, first meet. Mm -hmm. That was uh, 
the first scene that I wrote. So oh, it was really? always, yeah, it was the last scene that was shot. such a tender scene. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. And this won't spoil anyone, but it involves a fur coat. Yes. Them in a fur coat together. Yes, and it's <laughs> that's <really> right. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, no, no, uh, you know, don't buy fur. But, yeah. um, but yes, it, <laughs> it does. It could be faux fur, you yes, know, we don't exactly. know. exactly. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's a beautiful, tender, mm-hmm. intimate moment between the two of them. So much of the story hinges on the relationship between the two of them. Um Destiny, who Constance plays uh, up until that point, has mm-hmm. had a lot of contact with men and, mm-hmm. and strangers at her job, but she isn't really part of the fold, isn't really part of the sisterhood and the camaraderie mm-hmm. at the club. And so once Jennifer Lopez's mm-hmm. character, Ramona, kind of pulls her into her coat, um, that's where the friendship starts. Mm-hmm. And so seeing the two of them, their chemistry together, I mean, that was that was really exciting because yeah. they, they didn't meet until the camera test. Oh, really? And so they were there and, you know full hair and makeup mm-hmm. and wardrobe and and Jennifer was in that coat and mm-hmm. and she put her arm around Constance for the first time and I, I just got chills. Oh, it was really... I did too. I did too watch it. <laughs> well, speaking of Jennifer Lopez, we have to talk about her performance specifically. Here's a treat from Hunter Harris, uh, who writes, the other thing about Hustlers is that J-Lo will be nominated for an Oscar. So, you know, all of the performances were incredible. You know, Cardi, Lizzo, et cetera. I did not see a bad actor in sight. Um, but what do you think about this buzz around J-Lo and this Oscar idea? And what was it like working with her as an actress? I mean, it's incredible working with her. She's the hardest working woman in show business. She is obviously a quadruple threat, but um, I've just been a fan of hers for a really long time. I'm such a fan of her work as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's because she has this like brand and is obviously a mogul and does so mm-hmm. many different things. I think maybe people forget what chops she has. And <laughs> so, um, so I was really excited to showcase that, obviously, but also see her in a role that maybe we haven't, really seen her in in a long time or mm-hmm. um, something dangerous, you know? Um, certainly the supporting character, but it's sort of like a movie about Ramona. So oh, for sure. <laughs> in a way, it is my love letter to Jennifer and um, and just the kind of performer that she's mm-hmm. been for decades. So I'm, I'm so happy that she's getting that kind Well, of you attention. made a beautiful love letter for Jennifer. Oh. It's a really, that first dancing with her, I was just still <laughs> not over. Uh, but, you know, as the movie's been approaching release, there have been a lot of rumors around, you know, Constance and Jennifer not getting along, and you've spoken out against this, saying it's racist and sexist. And many times these rumors are usually tied to those issues. Mm. Why do you think people are so determined to pit women against each other, especially women of color like these two? I think they assume that any time a group of us get together that it's competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, certainly something like even in the clubs, I think people assume it's really competitive between the girls, which it can be, of yeah. course. Um, but that sisterhood and camaraderie is so necessary. It's such a necessary part of the survival. And um, and we just had that on set. Uh, so honestly, when I heard about it, it was just such an insult to my set <laughs> because, yeah. uh, you know, I don't run things like that. I, I, I love to mm-hmm. work with actors of all kinds who need different things, but everybody just got along so great mm-hmm. on this. Jennifer and Constance really did have that chemistry and that relationship right away. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to fake that, to yeah. be honest. And you get people like Kiki Palmer and Lily mm-hmm. Reinhardt mm-hmm. and obviously Cardi and Lizzo, but you get all of them together and it, it was just electric. It was such a fun group of people. We just enjoyed the heck out of it, mm-hmm. honestly. So. Was, was there a lot of dancing and singing? Because, you know, Lizzo, when she comes on the scene, she's very Lizzo mm-hmm. and Cardi's very Cardi. What was it like behind the scenes with these like titans of people just being let loose to have fun? Yeah, well, that was the exciting part was, of course, to let them let loose and mm-hmm. have fun. I mean, they come with their personalities, and, and they're so vivacious and fun. And um, 
Lizzo called me Madam Director, and I'll never forget <laughs> it. Um, but uh, she was incredible. She was in the middle of her tour, mm-hmm. and she just happened to have a window. So she showed up. I feel bad. She had the flu when she got there, though you'd never know it. You would it. never know that. Um, so she had the flu, and she, and she, she worked through flu. She had the flu, yeah. Oh. She brought her flute. And um, it was amazing. And, and to her credit and Cardi's credit, you know, obviously they're incredible improvisers. Mm-hmm. I think people could imagine them being natural at this, oh, although, sure. you know, I, I think they're, they're still kind of mind-blowingly mm-hmm. natural. Um, but to their credit, they also did read scripted lines and play characters mm-hmm. and slip into characters and Cardi-based Diamond on someone she used to know. And so that was also part of it. It was so exciting to see actors, performers, strippers, like all different mm-hmm. kinds of forms of entertainment come together and, and coexist in this movie. It's mm. really beautiful. And it's really magical. And I thank you so much for being here today talking about what a film that I think is going to be one of my favorite films of the year. So congratulations thank on you. that. Thank and, you. Thank you. Of course, of course. And Hustlers is in theaters this Friday. Up next, we're reading more of your tweets. Stay tuned. Welcome back, y'all. That was just so lovely. She was amazing. She was so amazing. Yeah. I mean, there was just some amazing women on the show today. Beyond you, Miss Alex Burke. Oh, thank you. But we had thank a US you. ambassador. We had um, hustlers. Just amazing. That'll be amazing Madam people. co-host Madam to you co- from now on. <laughs> <laughs> Madam director. I love yes, it. Yes, I love that. I love that that was what Lizzo said. And I can hear Lizzo saying that. But that was just a joy. And everyone, hustlers is out Friday. Uh, it is a joy, I think. I think people will like it. Yeah. Well, let's get to you all's tweets. We wanted to know who your favorite scammer was. Blasian FMA says... Who is my favorite scammer? What kind of question is that? Of course, it's Joanne, the scammer. That's uh, very hard to dispute. Very you, hard to dispute. Have you seen my photos as Joanne the scammer? I don't know. If you want to look at my Instagram, but I, must. I have been her at Halloween, and we, Brendan is the actor, the, the person behind the character, and we do look quite similar. So okay. I'll show you later. All right, noted. Get to check it out. Well, Princess Leia tweeted this following Hayes' conversation with Samantha Power. We recently watched Watchers of the Sky in my class, and I developed the biggest brain crush on Samantha Power in that moment. Oh, remember a time when we developed brain crushes on people in government? <coughs> Just choked. Or maybe you don't remember. <laughs> I, I do. I do. I miss it very much, very much. And Samantha Power is just a powerhouse. Yeah. yeah. Really, really, really. Well, that was a great conversation. It was in Hayes. Brilliant, as always. And speaking of Hayes, thank you, Hayes, for being here. Thank you, David Mack, John Lovett, Samantha Power, Lorene Scafaria, Merritt Weaver, and Tony Collette. We'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. 